welcome to The Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Okay, so the last two weeks, I have been overwhelmingly receiving synchronicities, whatever you want to call them, around emptiness. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it keeps coming up so often (laughs) that I'm like, obviously, this is something I have to look at. Um, I feel like emptiness in theory is something that it's like, okay, the understanding is starting to kind of like tiny, tiny little glimmers of like releasing my deep attachment to all of the things. Um, But I I still don't know exactly what to do with it. Like, I feel like Mm. the message is like, look at this, look at this, look at this. So help me look at this. So (laughs) can I ask, um, not to distract you from that question, we'll definitely explore this because it's a, I think it's an amazing topic. Um, but what, when you say like synchronicities, like what kind of, how do you know that it's pointing to like emptiness and, and things are drawing your attention there? Mm. Um, well, I, I hear it. Okay. Like I hear yeah, yeah. the word. Yeah. Um, and then it started showing up in, so, okay, so I, I did a workshop class Thing. It was on Saraswati, who, who I don't know much about, but I got a Vedic reading, and this is this is interesting. I don't know. The person totally. was like this person, this this deity is really important for you, um, and in particularly tied to Saturn. Mm. Discipline. The D word <laughs> comes back to me again. I'm like, I know. Um, and so there just so happened to be a workshop around her, and so I was like, oh, okay, mm. let me learn more about this energy. And so in the meditation, we were supposed to ask what uh, we needed. And she's also tied to Tibetan Buddhism, which I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. So she's Hindu and a Tibetan mm-hmm. goddess or tied to White Tara. And um, it's about like pure knowledge and and all of that good stuff. Um, so before, so when the meditation started, I just heard emptiness, stillness, and then I fell asleep. <laughs> Chosen narcolepsy. I love it. I don't like this topic. I am out. I passed out. Like I literally was like, bye. Emptiness. Like I'm Uh real empty. Uh Um, But but after that, I just started seeing the concept Mm. everywhere. Wu Wei Mm -hmm. started popping Mm -hmm. up. I decided Mm -hmm. to go clean out my Kindle. And Mm -hmm. all of the first books I bought on spirituality years ago, which I haven't looked at at all, turns out they were all about (laughs) Buddhism. I'm like, oh, funny. Funny past Allison's like a decade uh-huh. ago. Things uh-huh. I've never read, of course. Um, one was about Wu Wei and one was about the Tao. And it's it's kind of, you know, how to not act actively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, and, and then other people who I follow who are like Buddhist thinkers who mm-hmm. keep, kind of keep talking about this, like emptiness without nihilism. It's also in the Buddhist course I'm learning. Mm. We just started the Heart Sutra, and mm-hmm. um, 
then the next one is going into emptiness without nihilism. So I'm like, mm, I think somebody's <laughs> trying to tell me something. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm just trying me? to stay awake uh-huh. <laughs> long enough <laughs> to get the message. <laughs> we should. I think I'd say that one part of you is trying to stay awake while the someone, uh, you know, is also saying, I don't want to look at this. I want to just go to sleep. Um, exactly. hey, I'm going to pause for a second because we didn't even offer a, a welcome. We started. Uh, no, don't don't stop recording. Um, okay. We started. Alice and I always have a chat right before we start the podcast and then about midway through the chat we're like oh shit we should probably be recording this rather than just disclosing everything that's happening for us right now so hey everyone welcome to the knowing i'm cl we decided to stir things up a little bit you know just to try things different so allison let us in this morning thank you allison um okay so these are big questions right i mean when you i think that uh, i maybe i'll speak for myself when i first encountered the concept of of emptiness of um, you know so-called uh, shunyata as it's uh, called in in Shambhala I definitely I could I can recall going that sounds um, like the abolishment of the self you know like this total nihilistic experience of being a human being where you know there's the there I would call it the sort of ego's uh, understanding of what nihilism or of what emptiness is, you know, which is just nothingness, right? And I thought at first, mm. I'm like, why the hell would I ever want to do that? A, but like B, it's also impossible, right? That that doesn't seem like a, a a thing to even try to aspire to, especially at that point in my life, which was many years ago. So once I started practicing, you know, emptiness emptiness meditation. And Pema Chodron has this really beautiful way of um, speaking about what she calls the gap. And when you're in your meditative practice, um, not necessarily, I do, haven't done a lot of Vipassana, but um, I don't think that this is a big component of it, but perhaps it is, and people can correct me if I'm wrong. But in Chunyata, you know, you are attempting to find the space sometimes between the inhale and the uh, exhale, or the exhale and the next inhale, and there's this pause. And when you experience it for the first time, um, it was a it was a deeply transformative experience for me. The first time that it happened for me, it was almost like you know when you throw a ball up in the air, and there's this moment where the ball is neither moving up nor down, and it's it's almost mm-hmm. like it's it's in suspended motion, and then it moves into its next mo- you know experience. I had that you know as a person as a being where. I had no uh, expectation of of what was happening next or what had come before. And there was, I mean, the only sort of language that I think I can use to articulate the feeling well was that I felt like like an empty vessel. Like I felt like I was I was this space. I was the both the space and the the sort of containment of the space, as as strange and abstract as I know that mm-hmm. sounds, right? And Pema Chodron talks about, you know, that we encounter that space, that pause. And then as we practice more and more, it starts to widen, you know, and it starts to be that we can have movement, but still have that quality of it is stillness, right? It's mental stillness. Uh, It doesn't necessarily always equate to physical stillness. You know, we can be doing things and still have this quality of emptiness, of receptivity. But it is, in my understanding and, and my personal relationship with it, it is the divine feminine. It is the yin, that receptive experience of going, 
Whatever this moment contains, whatever my experience is offering me, I am first sitting with it and letting it be before I am moving into response or reaction or action or, you know, and negotiation or whatever with it, right? And that, mm-hmm. I mean, I, has been the most important uh, experience that I've extracted out of my meditation uh, practice and still do, you know, for the ability to meet a situation as it is without immediately, um, you know, saying, I don't want this to be happening, going into aversion or clinging to it and wanting it to happen more and more, right? That to me mm-hmm. is the the ultimate purpose of of pursuing emptiness right is so that we can be i think truly sane human beings right because it, it it's a rather amazing form of insanity to be having a situation happening and saying i don't want this to be happening and creating this mass amount of suffering for ourselves just through the sheer resistance to what is right so mm-hmm. i suppose that sort of starts us at the end in a sense of like the ultimate goal of emptiness but do you have like other specific questions on I mean, the the purpose of it, or or what's the the perplexing quality for you? Hmm. I don't even know if I'm know enough about it to be perplexed yet. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like the challenging part now is just again allowing the discomfort. Um, mm-hmm. Because I've been going through this wave of like really experiencing anger and resentment, which we've talked about a little mm-hmm. bit personally, um, and it's not for any particular reason. Like I, I, I don't know if this is like just old stuff coming up, just old mm-hmm. stale stuff. That's what it feels like. It feels stale, mm-hmm. um, and there is a part of me that I think, if I'm being completely honest with myself, that can touch that emptiness but i it's like it feels really frustrating to not do anything with the stuff that's there because the stuff that's there isn't pleasant um the stuff and in i the don't emptiness? know I, I feel like i'm such a say that again the stuff in well, the emptiness or the stuff preceding the yes. emptiness uh-huh. Well, I don't know. See, I don't even know how to talk about this because it's such a new concept. I don't know how to ask the questions, but it's mm-hmm. like I can feel the truth that everything is innately empty, that nothing mm-hmm. has a definite nature. Um even conflict, that it's like somehow it's always coming back to Echoes, I guess, Mm. is the only way I can explain it. That it's like the Mm -hmm. stuff that happens to you that makes you feel this charge is really an echo from something previous that has happened. (laughs) They're like, like, what is she smoking today? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, they're like, I want some of what she's smoking. This sounds really fun. It sounds like a really good time. Also confusing. It's really No, we might not be able to even put this out. No, no, it's Um, good. It's good. Because, I mean, the thing is, Alison, like, this is a, it's not a concept that the cognitive mind can grasp. This is the the paradox and the the 
great difficulty of it is that it is only in the silencing and the stilling of the this cerebral self that one can experience the spaciousness of emptiness, right? The mind cannot mm-hmm. understand it. It's not something that can, I mean, you can read every book in the world and I've done that to go, okay, I want to, I mean, I kind of wanted to prep my mind for the idea that this was even possible and and understand the philosophy and and sort of the maybe convince my mind of the purpose of it, right? But ultimately, the experience of it is truly mindless. It is not, you know, an extended period of emptiness. And I've had two maybe in my life that have gone beyond a few moments, you know, one that was 45 minutes long and like, there was just nothing. There was just a space that I was in. And I can't describe, um, I mean, I was not doing anything. There was just this this quality of being. And it was, I mean, I came out of it and I was crying. I had no idea what mm-hmm. happened in that space, but it was in a meditation in, when I was living in France. And, um, but like generally, no, I, I can't go in there and stay in there. And I, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, I think, in Buddhism. And, and to become a true Buddha is to be able to inhabit that space uh, in perpetuity. But I, the, the, the mind, especially the ego mind, hates the even concept, the concept of emptiness, right? Because it is the death of the ego to release expectation, assumptions, limits on the self, stories about the world, you know, all of these structures that <laughs> define our, our ego mind, you know, they're, they're trying to understand emptiness and that's an impossibility, right? It's mm-hmm. it, the, the mind training that is accomplished through meditation is to still the mind enough that we can move into the natural state of our being, which actually is emptiness. That is what mm-hmm. we are born as, in a sense, is total receptivity, right? We very quickly come out of that as babies and, and human beings in this world, right? But um, that is our, that's our true state. That's the state that we want to inhabit. I think that's the state that animals inhabit, right? And until they've been domesticated, you know, they, they're not anticipating the future. They're not worrying about things. They are in this receptive present moment awareness that is emptiness, right? It's, it is, uh, I mean, that's, you know, a metaphor that's used in Zen all the time of being an empty cup, right? So that you can actually mm-hmm. receive what's coming in without overlaying it with all of your stories about what should be and what you wanted instead and everything else, right? And that's what we're aspiring to um, if we are, you know, aligned with these kind of principles and philosophies. So I feel like maybe that is what the pain is. Like, I don't claim to, like, I don't know that I'm even really experiencing it or, do you know what I mean? I don't know what this feeling is yet. But it's like, I think that some of the pain is the flickering away from that. That it's like, Mm -hmm. I feel that that's the truth and I feel that I'm not in that and it hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, it's a, you know, again, as Prabhupada Chodron says, and I love it, and I say this to myself often, is begin with a broken heart. When we want to go into these practices, you know, we start in that place of pain. And what you said earlier about, you know, your your defending self, your defender self, the, the irritation, the resentment, those are the things, you know, and it's wonderful that you can articulate them as being stale, because those are the things that you've used to protect the more vulnerable pieces of you for your whole life, Right. And whenever they get activated, not to oversimplify, um, you know, times when we are really irritated or irritable, but it is 
almost guaranteed, I'd say guaranteed, that some pain part, some some piece of our pain body has been poked and we don't know what to do with it, right? We don't know how to be receptive to that part that is hurting. We don't know how to reparent it. We don't know how to listen to it and, and create a relationship with it, right? So then the defending part of us, you know, which is our irritation or everybody's got different, you know, defender qualities and characteristics, but most people have a irritable one, um, it steps in, right? And goes, here, I'll protect you and you don't have to feel this feeling, right? So, um, I mean, moving into those vulnerable spaces and listening to those parts of our pain body are, are what is required to release the pain, you know, that did not get processed from the past, release the defender because it no longer has to do that job, right? It, it doesn't feel like some part of us needs that, you know, resentful, irritable person or, or character to defend it. And then we can step into our, our, our fullness as a, a whole human being and, and be still, right? Because uh, if we are carrying any latent trauma, any unprocessed emotional damages, we can't be still, right? We're always on the lookout for the next thing that's going to hurt us, right? Make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. I just don't know how to... Like what to expect? Like, is this something that just kind of like breaks apart all at once or is it's like no, this is it just doesn't. a constant chipping away? Yeah, it's a constant chipping away because, you know, the the layers of our pain body, um, let's say, you know, sort of the more superficial layers of it that might in many people relate to pain that we might be still carrying from our 20s, you know, later stages of our personal development, uh, less impactful um, in terms of, you know, if something really, unless it was a really intense trauma, certainly we have the the possibility of, of intense traumas impacting us intensely as, as adults. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, the stuff that we're carrying is is experiences that we did not know how to negotiate when we were children, right? And and the the younger we get, you know, the less verbal and cognitive capacity that we had, the more confusing our wounds were, right? We and unless we had mm-hmm. parents and adults yeah. and everything else to be around us to to help us navigate those emotional experiences, you know, I I've often said and I mean, I briefly was talking with Stephen Buner on the interview podcast about this that like. When we get into those emotional, those pain body pieces from when we are three or four years old, you know, they're so intense. Like the, the, the pain that that child was feeling is, is always really overwhelming, right? And we have to be ready to do that. And, and we gradually move into that, you know, and, and often people will work with, say, their 20-year-old self first and, and try to navigate the pain that she didn't know how to process to, to kind of prep themselves. And it's this, this constant cycle, in a sense, you know, until we achieve true enlightenment. And I think at that point, we might just combust and leave the plane because there's nothing else for us to do here, you know? So, right, right. But like, yeah, it is, it's, it's a commitment to move into more and more authentic and aligned versions of ourselves and thus more and more emptiness in our cognitive state because the less wounds we're carrying, the fewer wounds we are carrying, the the less our mind needs to be in constant churning, right? To anticipate more wounds or try to figure out the world and make assumptions about people. And so there we come into a more and more 
calm and still state of mind, right? Not to suggest, I think, that we exist there again uh, forever and ever until maybe we do, but I'm not there, sure as hell. And, and, you know, but love the journey in that, like, I'm always finding these parts of myself that that needed that healing, and now I get to do that for them, right? Mm-hmm. There, Tim Ferriss, uh, have you encountered internal family systems at all? I've heard of it, but I don't know that I've practiced it, but I, I hear that pop up. Often. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fairly, you know, it's not a new system by any means. It was uh, developed by a guy named Richard Swartz, and um, Tim Ferriss had him on his podcast recently, and it's really worth a listen. It's an excellent dialogue, and then and, and, uh, they do an active IFS practice on the air with, uh, with mm-hmm. Tim, and, mm-hmm. and he walks him through it. And it's so crazy, Allison, how similar it is to the soul retrieval that I do with people. Is It is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was trying to describe it to my um, husband one day, you know, of like the experience of sitting with someone in this moment, and they start talking about a pain. And in uh, however, you know, I, I do this, I'm not entirely sure, but it, I feel like I, I, I meet their pain in this moment. And it's not in, in a true like empathic sense. It's almost like outside of myself. I'm understanding their pain. And then I'm, I'm like pulling on a thread through their being and, and walking down this sort of path with them. That sometimes they're not even with me, but I'm trying to find the, the root of that pain in a sense. And in, you know, in shamanic practice, we can go back to the root of the pain, to the soul self that they fragmented from, and try to convince that part of themselves that, you know, their, their future self is going to take care of them now and that they can come back. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I tend to not do that um, for the person. I want them to come with me and do that work so that they establish the relationship with their past self. And this is really what IFS is, is doing, is, is like helping people, you know, converse with those those vulnerable wounded aspects of themselves and do the the inner healing work so then again those protector selves and again protector selves can be anger they can also be people pleasing they can be overworking you know they can be any of the coping mm-hmm. strategies that we use to find a, a sense of control right in our lives um and so then those can settle though once we're not carrying that wounded vulnerable part of us mhm so do you feel like it's all rooted in control? <laughs> all of it? Everything? All of it. Um, <laughs> everything. <laughs> everything. You mean in yeah. terms of, um, you know, the strategies that we employ in order to navigate right. life? Like or? the way that we protect ourselves is mm-hmm. essentially a means to control mm-hmm. Absolutely. our yep. surroundings. Yeah. And yeah. the the sad, you know, the the tragedy of that is that for better or worse, we the the part of our mind, the ego mind that wants control, it wants predictability. And so mm-hmm. it will try to find evidence for the story that it knows. So this is the hardest part, and I think I've referenced this before, you know, with working with with human beings, with being a human being, is that we like what we know. Until we actively practice leaping into the unknown, you know, over and over and over again and actually stabilizing ourselves when we meet the unknown um, and, and, and not obeying those kind of lower urges of our of our biology, really, to seek what is easy and familiar, right? The ego will 
take the story that you created in childhood, which is often, you know, a mixture of good and bad things, but often there's a lot of pain-based thoughts in there of like, oh, I am not smart or I'm not pretty or I'm not interesting or whatever, right? And you constructed this story about yourself um, in order to mm -hmm. kind of get safety, as strange as that seems, you know, like to, to survive the circumstances that you were born into and make sense of things, right? And so then the ego says, okay, well, this is the story that I am subconsciously, you know, committed to, and I want to control that that story is always true. And so then that person will walk through life looking for evidence to confirm their pain story. And, you know, until they investigate it, the world can't teach them, you know, that they are different than that, right? Because their mind still will want to say, no, I got taught when I was a kid that I was stupid or or unlikable, right? And no matter how many people come from the outside world going, you're, you're likable, you know, that person's brain will still go, mm, but that one person over there doesn't like me, so there's the evidence that I want. Right. It's so... Mm -hmm tricky to to move past the ego mind and i mean this is why meditation is such an incredibly important tool is to be able to extract the authentic self from the mind self right to to create that gap that space and go whoa there's my my brain my thinking self over there churning away trying to control things and find evidence for stuff and here i am being the witness over here watching my mind do that and that's you know, that is absolutely essential for a person then to be able to look at their their patterns and their their habits and and realize how much of them might be rooted in pain and then heal that pain, right? Go into it and, and take responsibility for for reparenting it. Mm. I, I'm really interested in you, you, the languaging you use, the you're pulling on a thread. Mm -hmm. Can you explain more about like what that is and how do we start pulling on that thread? <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, truly, as I was trying to explain it to my husband, because like it's something that only in the last couple years I've really been able to un feel into myself. Like it's, you know, I I think anyone who's listening who has innate healing gifts, and and I think most people do. You do things, and you don't even realize that you're doing them, and you think everybody else does yeah. them. You know, like I um. I, I don't have synesthesia by any means, but definitely colors and numbers have personalities and they have like flavors to me. Like, and I don't, and mm -hmm. I, I don't think I have like by any means full blown synesthesia, but like to me, I just think everybody has like emotional experiences with the number eight, you know, and like apparently <laughs> right. people don't. <laughs> so, you know, and like that, I think it comes it it it's an interesting thing to become aware of something that has been part of your makeup for a very long time. You know, like you have a natural psychic ability. You don't even realize that you're doing it. You don't even realize that receiving messages all the time isn't what everybody else does, you know? And so, but when you start to recognize it and you start to hone that skill, I've always been able to walk into people's pain. And this is why like pain is is was when I was a kid, it was it was excruciating for me to like see people in pain or, you know, having uncomfortable experiences. Like, I mean, my parents for a very long time had a very unhappy relationship. And I remember now like the the agony that I would feel thinking about how unhappy they were, you know, and I didn't want them to get divorced, but I it was it was awful to sit in that and go, good 
like, you guys are so miserable. This is, this is horrible. So mm. now I can see that it is a conscious, it's a conscious choice for me now to say, okay, I'm going on this path with people. I don't think I had a, a voluntary kind of quality to it previously. And that's why it would feel really overwhelming is like all of a sudden you're just like on somebody's pain path with them. But yeah, it's, mm. it's like a trail of crumbs almost. And it's, it's energetic in nature. Um, again, because I do this practice with people, I don't do it for them. Uh, someone who I'm hoping to, she, she's said that she'll come on the podcast, which I'm really excited for. She's a shamanic teacher who specializes in, in soul retrieval. And uh, I'll just keep it secret for now. But she does it for her clients. Um, and, and so she definitely has a different practice. But for me, yeah, it's like I'm like walking, pulling on it making sure they're coming along with me, right? Because I don't know if you can recognize this, Allison, but sometimes, and I think you kind of spoke to it earlier, actually, as we get closer and closer to our pain, the inner alarm system that's like, no, 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 don't go there. No, 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 you can't touch that. Like, no, 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 don't, 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 right? And then it'll get like more and more intense and you'll see this escalation of anger, of irritation, of, of frustration, maybe, you know, any other, again, mechanisms that you use as protectors, right? That that will get more and more and more intense. And like sometimes people can't handle it. Like they don't want to go into that, even if I'm holding their hand in, a, in an energetic sense, you know, and saying, hey, this is okay. We're going to keep you regulated even as we walk into this, right? Does that make sense? Mm, it's really it hard to describe because it's like, it's it's like other, and I, I would just love to hear from other people who have and have always known that they have gifts in this sense, you know, like how you even begin to describe like seeing things. I'm not a visual person. I don't see, I don't see colors or auras or anything. Like it's never been an experience, but yeah. it's like a kinesthetic embodied feeling that like I I have a very difficult time fully describing. Mm-hmm. Where do you think these things come from? Is this like um, survival mechanisms? Like, is is mm-hmm. that's such a cool question? Intuitive gifts. Uh, I mean, my mom is very intuitive, but she also had a really rough childhood, and mm. she knows she's like mine is pure survival mode. Like the way she mm. can read people, it's all mm-hmm. survival, and and it can be a little bit black and white thinking, but she knows mm-hmm. that. And she's like, I understand that's what it is. And it's just what it is. She's not interested mm-hmm. in like developing it or even like, it's just like, yeah. yeah, she's like, that's just what it is. So I'm, sometimes I'm like, do, do parts of our brain turn on as like an evolutionary mm. protection in a way? It is such an interesting question. You know, oddly, I was reading this article for school yesterday and I was talking about this. Um, I'm sure you've heard about this, this horrible uh, experiment that was done, I think in the 1960s. Um, and I can't remember the experimenter's name at the moment, but where they brought in subjects and they were getting the subjects, the test subjects, um, they were told that they were to administer a test to these patients, basically. And these patients were hooked Mm -hmm. up to electrodes. And if they got the wrong answer, they had to shock them. And so the patients (sighs) were, they were in on the experiment. They weren't actually receiving shocks, but it was was an experiment on compliance and looking at, you know, people's relationship with authority, right? Um, Because some, and the, the, outcomes of it were crazy because it was like 60% of people 
would administer like a, a near fatal potential shock to these people while they were screaming and, you know, calling to be let out of this experiment just because they were obeying authority, right? The the head experimenter was like, no, you have to shock these people no matter what. Like it was crazy. And a lot of ethics around psychological research came out of this because people were like, this is so messed up. And people left the experiment, the, the test subjects, you know, being really messed up by recognizing Recognizing oh their own compliance, right? Yeah, but this, uh, I know this is a sort of tangent, but like the question of what makes us unique and individual and what makes us aligned with the group, I think both have survival qualities to them. Like obeying authority is something um, is sort of tribal in a sense that it was required for us to survive, is required for us to survive, is to get along with other people, right? And and function in a group. And, and so uh, compliance with authority it really, you know, comes out of that is that we will look to someone who we have deemed to be more intelligent, more powerful, whatever, and we'll go along with what they say, right? So I think that that exists in us alongside are gifts. And I do think that every person has gifts. And my teacher would always say, you know, you have three gifts. Your job is to find them. That is the path of, of the spiritual seeker is to discover and amplify and then offer your gifts. And so... Three specifically. Um, yes, that's what she would say. Hmm. So, yeah. And, and, and it was... I mean, it was such an interesting thing to say, this is my, my goal now is to figure out what my gifts are, right? And... And then work on uh, utilizing and understanding them and and give them in service, right? Because that is the the unique, the individual um, souls part of us, right? We carry some medicine that the world needs. And then we all have the other part of us, which um, is the more, again, tribal oriented and and uh, group think kind of part of us, which also has survival strategies, right? And I think our our task is is existing in both of those spaces, right? Because um, we can't be just, oh, I'm going to find my gifts and and not think about the larger group and not function as a human being in this system, right? But you know, one of the the test subjects in this experiment, you know, that they were writing about was this. Um, he was of Italian descent, and you know they're describing the character of these people. And said he came in; he was very gruff. He's a welder or something, and like was so angry at the people for complaining. And he was like, "This is your job. You're a test subject. Like you should be okay with wow. this." And it's like that is a person who's lost their their individual, their soul self, right? And is so subscribed to the authority mm. that they have lost, you know, the search for their own uniqueness, right? And and I think mm. that figuring out how to do both, right? Where we we don't get to just do whatever we want whenever we want, right? But nor should we be so um, subjugated to, you know, authority that we are not, re- I mean, I think we lose our own, we lose hum- humanity and, and an awareness of mm. of the, the beauty of our own existence, right? Does that answer your question? Mm. It, it does. I'm curious about what do you mean by gifts? Now I'm locked mm. into that. I'm like, mm-hmm. is this gift like I'm really good at math or <laughs> like, what, are, what kind of Maybe. <laughs> I mean, this, I'm not really that. Good at math, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, the 
they're just as the complexity of human beings is limitless, you know, in terms of how many types of person, people there could be in existence, the gifts are limitless, right? And they are so unique to each person. Um, and I mean, certainly there, there's probably going to be classes of them. And, and many people, I think, have experimented and explored this, like, uh, clairsentience, clairaudience, clairvoyance, you know, the, those kind of more typical spiritual gifts where you have this ability to, um, in a sense, dislocate your own awareness and put it somewhere else or perceive another dimension of reality, right? Um, mm-hmm. We, I don't talk too much about my specific gifts in a sense. I think I hold them closer to my chest than uh, my spirit guides and, and allies. Um, but you know, when we're talking about soul retrieval, one of the capacities that I know I have, which I don't know if it it actually, people will hear this as a gift, but I have the ability to sit with people now in pain and have no empathy for them. And I know that sounds crazy, but like Mm -hmm. I don't get destroyed by their pain. And Mm -hmm. as a therapist, as a a healer, empathy is a, a highly destructive state to exist in, I think. Um, I have immense compassion, but if I am too much in the other person's experience, I am too much in the whole with them in a sense, right? Then um, I have no capacity to let the process or help the process unfold, right? And I have this ability Mm -hmm. to, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but like sit with people who are in immense pain and say, okay, like you're here and I can sit with you, but I'm still going to help you through it, right? Which I think of Mm -hmm. as a gift. Um, I Mm -hmm. don't think it makes me a sociopath, but if people think otherwise, (laughs) they could... (laughs) They can definitely let me know. Some people have let me know. They're like, ooh, you're a little bit cold. One of my best friends, actually, she sent me this message this week. And she's like, thank you so much for your non-empathic presence. I was like, yes, you understand me and how I want to be in the world. It's like, no one else would think that that's a compliment because, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, gifts, you know, you have this gift of... Um, I mean, it would be in my lineage called a gift of of reading, right? Um, and and I think that you can well, I, maybe I'll, I'll hand this over to you though. Is is you can recognize how that gift can be? It's like a wild horse. Like if you don't train it and actually practice utilizing it, you know, then it it's all of a sudden you're getting messages out of nowhere and you don't know where they're coming from and you can't tell if it's your fear talking or your your true, you know, psychic abilities, right? Like it is something that we have to to train and practice. And I, I mean, this is the art of of spiritual work. It's not a weekend course. You don't go and get certified in something and then you're like, hey, and now I got this, right? Um, people, you know, the gift of of healing through song, the gift of um, healing through movement, you know, the gift of of inspiration and 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 being able to speak in ways that that creates transformation in people. Like these are all gifts that I think you know you can see in a child and go, wow, you have this natural proclivity for that, but. You know, you don't stop there. And and I think our school systems should be systems that are like, wow, look at the magic in this little being. How do we support them in, in you know, offering these gifts to the world more fully? And I don't think that that's what we're doing, right? But no. does that ring true like for anything, you? you get, I mean, 
Yeah, you, I think if anything, you get taught to just keep it secret, and so then oh, you can't absolutely. develop it because you're by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're like not absolutely. supposed to tell anybody. Yeah, because they are. Um, you know, I I do think that. Well, I know that these are soul gifts, and in order to have contact with them, we have to have contact with our soul. And in order to have contact with our soul, we have to have a fluid experience of our emotions because that is the language of the soul. And we live in an emotionally averse and handicapped society, quite honestly. Like we we are not good at navigating our emotional experience. We're getting better. And I think that we are recognizing, you know, the necessity of doing this work. But like we've had a long time of not being emotionally aware beings and and in fact, you know, exactly the opposite. And so, so many people are so cut from their souls, you know, that then they could create a school system that is not about the, you know, um, awareness of the unique uh, characteristics and capacities of each individual, but more about this, you know, conveyor belt of of creating, you know, fairly monocropped humans that can go on mm-hmm. out into the world and and do jobs, right? So, I mean, yeah. this is is an old system and it's been in place for a long time, but if you want to know your gifts. Listen to your emotions. If you want to know what medicine you carry, go into your pain. Because, I mean, I do walk the path of the wounded healer, which is that every single thing that I have suffered through and and all the pain that I have navigated is exactly the medicine that people seek me out for, always. And and that's like, mm. it's such an amazing thing. And and we need to validate and and honor our our pain body, you know, and that's how we get to our soul gifts. Again, we don't get to it through the brain. The brain can't comprehend that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know what is tricky though is the idea of these spiritual gifts can, or at least they feel like they can easily feed self-importance. And mm. then it becomes like a, mm-hmm. you know, I'm an empath. I can't move <laughs> in the world because everything's so hard. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, I do feel totally. like sometimes these intuitive gifts can be this, like, badge of honor, too. And mm-hmm. so there's part of me that I'm like, do you mm-hmm. even want to develop them? Because then it just kind of adds, like, one more mm-hmm. hurdle of eliminating mm-hmm. self-importance. Totally. That's, you know, and I think it is a great challenge um, in the world today because, I mean, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, I consider myself exceptionally lucky to have had teachers who were willing to be mean to me sometimes, you know, and by mean, I mean, like, call me out on like, hey, get over yourself, like, you're not important, you know, and, and that... (laughs) I we live in a very egocentric, self-important society, right? And the co-opting of our spiritual practices by the ego is a tragedy, and it is rampant, and it's not going to slow down any time, you know, I don't think, unless people consciously say, I need to be fully aware of why I am seeking my gifts and and why I am doing this work. And practicing the answer on a daily basis. And the why is never to get famous, to make more money, to be more popular, Mm -hmm. to feel more important, right? The why is always so that I can be medicine in the world and help other people. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that, like, it's it's something, and I, I say this 
total personal experience that I went down the path of self-importance and was like, look at me. I'm so good at this. I'm amazing. I got all these gifts. Look at how special I am. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. And then it was like, here you go. Here's here's something that like you can't navigate. You know, and I mean, I am a very, as a reference before, I'm a very slow learner at certain times. So it was like, here, try depression. Nope, that didn't stop you. Oh God, try Lyme disease. Oh shit, that didn't stop you. How do we stop this train wreck? You know, like I just like kept going. I am so good. I am so good. And uh, it was it was definitely my son that stopped me the most. Like he was like, "You need to realize that you are completely thinking about yourself all the time." And mm-hmm. I, those of you who are familiar with human design, I'm a one three, so I I live in my own world all the time and think nothing about <laughs> nothing but you know how what's happening for me. So <laughs> it was a challenge to get out of that. But like when I realized that you know nothing. No gift is meaningful at all unless it is offered in service. And it it's that was such a magical moment to go, oh, this isn't about me at all. And I don't want it to be about me. I'm tired of thinking about me. I want to think about whether I am in service. And I mean, I still think about me, but it's it's in the sense of like, did I show up today? Did I have integrity? Did I drop my self-importance? Was I aligned? You know, and that that's the self-checking that, you know, I, I think our ego mind should be entrusted with. It's like, yeah, look at that, you know, like not whether or not you're mm-hmm. famous and everybody loves you and everything else. So, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a tricky thing to not make ourselves feel too special. And it also, you know, you and I have talked about this, Allison. It is important to feel special, you know, and when I like I'm sure everyone who's listening can recognize how amazing this would make you feel. Like I get this call out of the blue from some woman being like, spirit told me I'm supposed to teach you, meet me at this coffee shop, you know? And it was like, oh my God, I'm amazing. Like I am the most important thing in the entire world, you know? And like, it it did make me feel so special. And I think that that was important, you know, but it's, it's this fine line. You got to walk with people as we've talked about before, where then you're like, sometimes got to sort of smack them in the face and be like, and you're probably a piece of shit actually. And nothing really, you know, cares if you're here or not. So like, it's, it's hard. Because I mean, I've done that with you, right? Back and forth. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes, what smack me? (laughs) Totally, you know, and like because I love you (laughs) and I care deeply about your process. You know that, like, yeah. If we go down the path of self-importance, we miss out on the most beautiful part of being a human being, which is selflessness. Is is actually not Mm -hmm. going. Was I, did, did I get noticed today, right? Like that's suffering. That's so much agony. And it, it it doesn't allow us to have like this childlike pleasure with just doing stuff, you know? Like we're, yeah. we're doing things and we're thinking, is this going to get me what I want, you know? And we've lost how beautiful it is to just dance or make art or just do stuff, right? We've lost that potential for authenticity. And and I, that makes my heart hurt that like you see people using their gifts in service of their ego. And, and I, I mean, I don't wish for bad things to happen by any means or painful experiences, but I kind of wish for those people to hit some sort of blockage to be like, whoa, okay, something's happening here. Like maybe I'm, maybe I'm walking down a, a not so, not so beneficial path for myself. Mm. Well, I feel like now that there's like this kind of spiritual industry, I think it's like I'm supposed to take my gifts and start a business with them. Totally. I, I feel yeah. like that's been like what's cropped up 
the past few years especially. Yeah. And it's like, I, I think it's like, how do we understand how to use our gifts as medicine and separate that from how we make a living? I mean, and for mm-hmm. some of us, that is the path that it's like you, like you, for instance, you make your living by specifically doing this work with people, using your gifts, and people are aware that you're using your gifts. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that is my path or. Well, but see, I think that. The, I was always using my gifts. I just didn't realize it. You know, when I was mm-hmm. working in a strip club, I think I was using my gifts. I was, <laughs> I was taking care of people very well. I was very attentive to their needs and their pain body. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but like, I, it's always been there. Um, but wait, I, I feel think like you cannot that, just glaze past what you're in a strip club. I kept my clothes on. <laughs> you, can't, you cannot casually go past. I know. Sorry, sorry. I couldn't <laughs> listen to anything you said after that. I was like, what? I, I just, you, you know, before, you I was... Yeah, no, I was I was a really interesting nineteen year old. Nineteen is the legal drinking age in Canada in BC, and um, I've been living in Mexico when I was eighteen, and I got back just before my nineteenth birthday, and I was just like, "Where am I going to make the most money?" Obviously, in a strip club. So I like walked into a strip club like the week after I turned nineteen and got a job and worked there for quite a while, like a year and a half or something. I made a lot of money. It was it was quite bizarre and and weirdly enjoyable in many ways. It was nice camaraderie with the ladies, you know. So mm. it was it was very strange. I, I had a lot of male friends at that time. It was all odd. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to be <laughs> friends with me. I thought, wow, oh, I must be very cool. So. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time. I mean, I was a bartender for a really long time and working in, in mm-hmm. every nightclub and, you know, I, I I had a lot of jobs. But I do think in all of those circumstances, I was using my gifts. What I was maybe going to allude to is that um, you are so right, Alison, capitalism and and this monetization and and this idea that, you know, our spiritual practices are going to make us rich and famous and money and everything else is is so damaging to the the actual authentic spiritual process as I see it, which the first step of which is cultivating discipline. Um, and uh, <laughs> I hear that word one more I know, time. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it is, it's, it's learning to use the will. Learning, you know, yeah. to use... Our, our active will and say, okay, how am I going to show up? Learning integrity, calling ourselves to task on being a, a decent functional human being, right? That this is the, the first phase of life is really full engagement with our willful self. I love the philosophical debate on whether or not we actually have free will or not. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think anyone will ever be able to answer that question fully because, you know, is it really you that's making the decisions or is it your gut bacteria or your previous experiences or, you know, who knows? Mm. But I do think for a healthy human evolution, in the first part of life, we emphasize that you do have will and you need to show up and you need to take care of things and you need to have discipline and stay committed to a way of being in the world that is important for you. In the second half of life, I think we relinquish our will and we surrender and we learn yin and and the practice of of letting the will of the universe and the intelligence of our process guide what we do, right? And in that, because of the structure and the containment that's been created through our, our engagement with the will, then, you know, our gifts can flow through in service 
and and we're we're not going to be scrambling in a sense for for self importance or you know this sense of of meaning through our spiritual stuff, right? Our spiritual mm-hmm. capacities, and I think that um, I know that you know if you look at the history of spiritual practices, the fact that if you wanted to go and become a Zen practitioner, you most likely would be showing up and sweeping someone's floor for somewhere between four and ten years before they'd even talk to you, right? That that mm-hmm. quotient of discipline is sorely lacking in our civilization, and and it's there's a tragedy in that, and you know there's many people who talk about how that relates to patriarchy and the loss of of beautiful father figures who are guiding us in this disciplinary way, the beautiful disciplinary way of being in the world, you know. But we mm-hmm. can reclaim that, um, and and I think it's very necessary to then not let the ego take your gifts and go, ooh, look at everyone's going to love you, everyone's going to think you're so important, right? Does that right. make sense? Yeah, it's, well, kind of what I'm hearing is you saying that it's spirit or whatever you might want to call that kind of intelligence is using your gifts as a service rather than you deciding how totally. your gifts are to be used. Totally. I mean, that's now in my process, Alison, like I... I, I had no idea that I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. And frequently, like, you know, opportunities come along and it's like, here, do this now, right? My will is, as I mentioned before, I feel best applied in how I show up every day. Am I doing my best? Am I, you know, saying, thinking, feeling, doing all the same thing? Am I present? And, you know, that's where I apply my will. It's still there, but it's, it's, so habitual, you know, that it's it's a thoughtless process, right? It doesn't have to have the same sort of structure that it did when I was younger. And I mean, I was a very disciplined person. I went to the gym every single day. I would, you know, go on these crazy freaking diets all the time, you know, to try to fix myself, you know. But if I decided I was doing something, I was like, okay, I'm on this and I am not straying from this path, right, for to a fault. Mm. But like, I feel like you know, younger uh, adolescents that I sometimes encounter who are having chronic anxiety and everything else, like we we don't, we've lost how important discipline is, right? We've lost how important structure and doing hard things are for later stages of life and, you know, for the health of being a teenager. And these kids are scrambling because in a sense, their lives are not hard enough, as crazy as that seems. They're hard, so hard in certain social and emotional ways. But when it comes mm-hmm. to like doing physical hard things, like that's it's that's where you know a lot of our discipline needs to be applied. I'm not saying like running triathlons or anything crazy for every person, but it does. There, mm-hmm. There's a, a component of, of challenging ourselves that needs to be in place. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even there are amazing researchers that look at the effects of not having food for a while, right? Our ancestors did not eat all day long, and they often went through periods of hard times not getting enough food. And that actually is beneficial for our, our cellular functioning to have periods of, of fasting, you know? And I mean, I, I'm going to frame myself as the worst mother in the world, but like when my child says he's hungry and it's an hour before dinner, I'm like, good. You know, and my, what did my husband say? He's like, what did he say? Oh, I can't even remember. I have to ask him now. But he's like, breathe into the the pain or the the the, the hunger or or I can't remember what he says. It's so great, but like 
you know, we we think, oh, you're hungry, you need to eat something. It's like, no, you're not. Be hungry. Like, you're fine. It's, yeah. You're going to get fed yeah. in a little bit, right? We were so immediately gratifying with kids' wants. Like, oh, I'm bored. Okay, here, do this. No, go be bored. Like, go, mm-hmm. you know, figure yourself out. Like, our society has has lost that discipline component and, and it is detrimental to, you know, our long-term functioning for sure. Intelligent production and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. All music, editing, and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Mm-hmm.